No matter what side you stand on regarding abortion, you've probably heard the commotion on the possibility of women losing their right to choose whether or not they carry a pregnancy to term. Now, Road versus Wade is an interesting case. First of all, for those of you who are wondering, Wade is not the father of the child. Wade was the Dallas district attorney at the time. So it started in 1973 when Norma Lee Nelson McCorvey, who went by the pseudonym Jane Roe, she's the one who tried to get an abortion for her third child. Now she had been married and become pregnant at 16, but divorced and gave that child to her mother. In 1967, she had a second child that she also gave up for adoption. And then when she became pregnant again in 1969, she wanted to have an abortion. But in Texas at the time, such a procedure was only legal if the mother's life would be endangered by carrying the pregnancy to term. So she ended up finding attorneys Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington, who had been looking for a case like this to challenge this Texas law. And McCorvey was actually hoping to get permission to have an abortion before the whole case went through. That did not happen. So she ended up carrying that child to term and giving that child up for adoption as well. But they won their case. And Texas tried to appeal that. But on January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court issued a 7-2 decision in favor of Jane Roe, which is Norma McCorvey, holding that women in the United States had a fundamental right to choose whether to have abortions without excessive government restriction and striking down Texas abortion ban as unconstitutional. But now we have this leaked document, and according to initial draft majority opinion written by Justice Alito, the Supreme Court has voted to strike down the ruling of Roe versus Wade. I'm going to be honest. I was a little perplexed by the outrage because... We've seen this coming for years, especially with the proclamations from the former president who said this is exactly what he was pushing for. So for me, the question is, how did this leak happen? And if this is what the Supreme Court is going to decide, what are the long-term effects that could happen not only in the country, but here in California. So on this week's episode of The Word, I have Cal State Long Beach professor Jason Whitehead, who specializes in Supreme Court matters, and he's going to join me to help answer some of those questions. Watch this. You are now listening to The Word with Jackie Ray. Welcome back, and thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode of The Word. I am very honored my guest took time out to come on the show today and break things down for us a little bit. He's been in demand, as you can imagine, during this time, but Professor Jason Whitehead is definitely the one to help us unpack this. He's the director of the Legal Studies Program, as well as a political science professor at Cal State Long Beach, and he joins me now via Zoom. What was your first thought when when you heard this this document had been leaked and you heard this possibility regarding Roe versus Wade? Actually, my first thought was about the internal workings of the court and how unprecedented it was that something like this would were to leak out because it's it's one thing to have a leak from the executive branch or from the legislative branch, because a lot of times the decision's been made and it's just a matter of writing it up. But at the Supreme Court, that's not the way it works. And so um, to have a draft this early in in the process that's being circulated among the justices that could, where the outcome could possibly change, it just struck, it hit me in the gut because I've been studying the Supreme Court ever since I was a teenager and I've never heard of anything like this happening. And 
it seems to me that like no matter where which side of the abortion controversy you fall on, whether you want Roe to be overturned or want Roe to be upheld, it does seem like uh, an increasing politicization of the court that is going to damage its legitimacy one way or another. I mean, if Alito decides to change his opinion now, now it looks like he's backed off because of public opinion, which is not good for the court, right? Mm -hmm. If he decides to keep it in place and it's like, well, they always wanted to do this anyway, so it's just political, right? So my whole my whole professional career has been devoted to trying to convince students and trying to convince others that the, that the law matters, right? It's not just politics, but yeah, this kind of upends that. So it's that was sort of my first thought. But I had yeah. a similar first thought as well. I, I, how I've never heard of a document being like this being leaked from the Supreme Court. So then, then I went to was this possibly intentional? Why? How? How could something like this happen? Yeah, it's uh, that it entered my mind, but it's the culture of the court is so, um, you know, liberal or conservative, the culture of the court is so tight-lipped and so um, kind of insular that it's hard for me to imagine that uh, somebody would want to leak it. My money's on more um, staff, mm. clerks. The clerks have been um, increasingly politicized. There's been some um, coverage lately. I can't point you to a specific article, but um, uh, people talking about clerks actually um, a lot of enmity between the clerks from from different justices, which was never the case, um, at least from what I've read um, in previous decades. But now it seems like there being um, the polarization among those clerks is is really severe, and so it you know it's possible. Mm -hmm. But even there, it's like to be a clerk on the U.S. Supreme Court means you know this is the first step in a long and illustrious career, legal career for yourself. So are you going to take a chance like this? Because, you know. Right. Yeah, it seems it seems unlikely. My money's more on on it gets circulated among all kinds of you know staff members within each chamber. And there's got to be one person there that's like, I can't believe what I'm reading. I'm going to mm. you know, make sure people know about this. We we seem to be a, on this road for a while. I mean, aside from it being leaked, I think that's what struck me the most is that the document was was leaked. The actual possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned wasn't as shocking to me because it seems like we've been on this road for a while. It would do you think that's correct? Do you think we have kind of seen the writing on the wall that this was a possibility? Well, I think all the way back to um, the 1980s and 90s, there have been there have been precedents that have been cutting back on Roe versus Wade. So in that sense, yes, but also in the sense of um, you know the rightward tilt of the Supreme Court and the way in which many um, conservative legal activists, especially Christian conservative legal activists, have been um, have had their eyes focused like like a laser on, on this issue for decades. And the reason why, I mean, if you go, want to go back to the election of Donald Trump, one of the reasons why uh, Trump got elected was because of the evangelical vote. And the reason that they voted for him was because of the Supreme Court. So it's unthinkable that, um, you know, you have a court that is within 10 years, right? Um, staunchly like, upholding of precedents like Roe versus Wade, landmark precedents like this, to now um, calling into question the very idea of a landmark precedent. Because if you can overturn a case that is wrong, I mean, there are all kinds of cases that are wrong that we keep in place because of stability. They're not egregiously wrong. But Alito's saying this precedent is egregiously wrong. That's kind of um, 
I'm not going to say it's unheard of because it certainly has happened before, Mm -hmm. but the groundwork has been laid for it rhetorically, but it is still a shock, I think. Um, Do you think that there is anything this current administration could have or maybe should have done to acknowledge the writing on the wall and do something to prevent something like this from happening? Is there something they could have done? That's hard to say because Mm -hmm. the court is so insulated from political pressure. There's no, there was no political will to increase the size of the court, which was talked about for a while, um, which again would have been seen as a huge blow to the court's legitimacy. Um, There's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, once the justices are there and you know the ideology that is motivating them, the legal ideology that's sort of motivating them to produce a decision like that, once, um, you know, I think back to the Obama nomination of Merrick Garland, which Mm -hmm. is which really got this ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, if that seat had not flipped, then you very well, because it looks like Roberts is going to vote maybe to keep Roe in place. And so you could very well get a five member majority on the court without that seat. So maybe more political will, um, more political activism, more more yeah, political activism outside of the Senate, right, to, to force the Senate to get, at least give Garland a hearing. Um, which was kind of an abdication of the Senate's responsibility under the Constitution. It was basically a stolen seat. Um, so it's like the ball was rolling back then. You could have done something at that point. Mm-hmm. But after the justices are already on the court, there's there's just really nothing that the, uh, the Biden administration can do about it. I mean, Congress can certainly try to protect abortion rights. But again, you, know, you got a closely divided Senate. That's not going to pass. And in states like California, I feel like we're not going to be impacted by this the same way other states are. Is that a is that a fair assumption? Is California going to be affected by this as well? Not in the immediate future, because the the main effect of this is just to push it back to the states. And, um, you know, the political culture in California, I can't imagine anytime soon is going to shift on this issue. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's going to, two things are going to, are going to matter for California. One is people coming from other states. So, so if a state like Arizona, for example, um, decides to ban abortion, then you've got, um, you know, a number of people that, that might flood into California. Also, you know, uh, other states where you've got pretty, pretty vibrant culture of abortion providers and and others in California. Planned Parenthood is fairly strong, very strong in California. So you've got you've got sort of people with socioeconomic status that can sort of move around from, you know, say Mississippi and Georgia and come to California and get abortions. So that's possible. Um, that it's going to affect California in that sense. I think a, a long-term issue though that people don't really have their eye on right now is the pro-life movement's not going to stop at this. Mm-hmm. The goal of the pro-life movement has always been to demonstrate that the fetus is a human being deserving of legal protection. You see this in all the literature. They compare it to slavery. They compare this to you know Roe versus Wade to Dred Scott. So um, uh, there's there's a lot of movement right now in the pro-life move, uh, uh, a lot of direction in the pro-life movement toward protecting the right to life as a constitutional right, protecting fetal life as a constitutional right. If they can get a conservative Supreme Court to buy into that logic, then that would overturn abortion laws in every state because Mm. it would then be a constitutional violation of the rights of the fetus. Um, Now that's long-term. I mean, we're talking a decade or more down the road. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I was reading kind of the history of, you know, when this whole situation first came about, and that was one of the um, I guess trigger points for a lot of people is that this the abortion was 
all of a sudden considered a civil right and instead of a human right. Is that part of the disconnect as well, where the, the rights of the fetus actually fall? I think there is a kind of misconception about what sort of the way that Roe dealt with uh, the issue of a woman's right to have an abortion was as a kind of right of the right of privacy was sort of the legal logic on which it was based, which did kind of shift it from a kind of, um, you know, existential, you know, weighty decision that a human being has to make about their own life um, to a more, to a kind of regulatory issue, because Roe basically said that you have to balance the interests of the state against the interests of the individual, just as we do in all kinds of other areas, including free speech and all kinds of places. But um, once you put it into that realm, once you say that this human right, as you call it, is, um, is now negotiable and can be balanced against the interests of the state, you've kind of, this was kind of part of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's logic against the logic of Roe versus Wade. She argued that it didn't, it didn't ground the right fully enough in, in the autonomy of women and the equality of women to be able to uh, control their own lives. Essentially, it kind of made it a medical issue and an issue that, um, again, there's this kind of balance that we can kind of trade it off against other weighty interests. And it's curious to me, you also said that um, it was the evangelicals that kind of pushed this. And we talk a lot about separation of church and state, but if the evangelicals have this much influence, then are we really still in a separation of church and state time? Yes and no. I mean, I think if you, you're looking at a, at a court decision that is is dealing with, I was reading through Alito's opinion last night, and um, it's it's a you know it's grounded in a kind of legal logic that doesn't really utilize um, any kind of theological terminology or religious terminology. So it doesn't in and of itself kind of breach this wall of separation between church and state. But if you have, um, if you have public policy in the country that's grounded essentially on, um, you know, the right to life issue that I was talking about before, if we protect fetal life as, uh, as a kind of human right, then um, now you've got a, a theological premise to, uh, to a law that is that really has no other grounding. It has no medical grounding. It has no scientific grounding. It only has grounding in a kind of faith-based belief. Now you're in more territory where you know now we've got a kind of theological construction of our identity. But back to the point about evangelicals and Christian conservatives, this is their vision of America. This is what they think America has always been, and it's only from the 1960s until today that it's kind of gotten away from this covenant with God. I, this is part of this is the research that I'm doing right now is um, I'm doing some ethnography within the Christian conservative community. And I grew up in that community. So I'm kind of like surprised and shocked at some, at the extent to which this Christian nationalist idea has kind of gone further and further within the movement. But yeah, they, to them, I think to most Christian conservatives, when they hear you say separation of church and state, they, their comeback would be there is no such thing. It doesn't exist in the Constitution, mm -hmm. which, you know, technically is correct. The language of separation of church and state doesn't appear in the Constitution, but yeah. yeah. Um, so it's not technically a violation of that, but it um, you can certainly imagine us moving further and further in that direction. Yeah, you know, it's just on a personal mm -hmm. note, this, I, I, I'm a big fan of the show, The Handmaid's Tale, and it's a, uh, kind of terrifying how close we're getting to that that fictional kind of state because as a woman I always wonder if if people are so concerned about not terminating 
a fetus when a man can produce way more children in a short, like he can father hundreds of kids in nine months and we can only make one child within a nine month period. So why is there never any thought or any legislation that addresses the men who also play a part in producing the child? The, the part of the problem is the, the movement, the, <clears throat> the pro-choice movement has been trying uh, since the 1980s to kind of push back on the idea that men have anything to do with the decision. Because um, initially in the aftermath of Roe, there were a number of states that passed, including Pennsylvania, which passed um, spousal and uh, paternal notification um, and sometimes consent requirements on abortion. So for political reasons, the movement certainly wanted to kind of nip that in the bud and say, you know, we, you're not going to force us to get approval from a man before we make this choice. But because so much of the movement during that time period was focused on that, that was sort of the only issue, the only way in which men were even connected to the issue and that it just, there, there wasn't any, certainly no political will to, um, to, to bring that issue back to the fore later. So what do you think the immediate outcome will be for our country? Um, I'm thinking about the, the impact of this on the midterm elections in 2022 coming up here. Um, I'm wondering if, um, you know, the Biden administration's already um, in hot water with the economy and on all kinds of other fronts, right? It's looking like a fairly weak presidency and um, uh, the opposite party almost always wins seats in midterm elections anyway, even, even with a fairly popular president. So, you know, Republicans are gonna gain seats. Are, gonna, are they gonna take back the house? Who knows? But if um, this issue becomes a mobilizing issue on the left, um, then you know there's some there's at least in some marginal house races across the country you might have enough of a pushback to prevent republicans from getting a foothold from getting the majority mm -hmm. um, in the u.s house so that's a possibility although it's hard to mobilize against something that's kind of a fait accompli like if this is the decision then there's nothing you're going to do to stop it at this point this leak's not going to stop it so how do you mobilize against a decision out of anger? I mean, I think anger is a powerful political motivator. We're already angry enough as a society, but um, this will, you know, it's, it's going to make it worse. Um, other things, I think that there is a kind of politicization of the court, as I was talking about initially, which is going to get worse rather than better. And I can see the court getting more and more polarized and divisive. I can see the dissenting opinions and the concurring opinions in this case, which probably are still being written, mm -hmm. um, you know, talk about the leak and, talk, and sort of like call out the other side, and blame the other side for this. So I think in the in the short term, it's going to polarize us more. In the long term, it's going to polarize the court more. Will it create more of a um, of a backlash on the like Roe versus Wade created a huge backlash? on the pro-life side. Will this create a backlash on the pro-choice side? Um, that's one of the things that Supreme Court decisions are pretty good at, mobilizing opinion like after the fact. Um, so it could be that we get a very vibrant pro-choice culture more than it is now in California and New York and other places that find ways to, um, that find ways to provide abortion. I mean, we can provide abortions now you know, at a certain stage of the pregnancy, we don't, you don't need surgery, you don't need a procedure. Um, so is the next battle over medically induced abortions, mm -hmm. abortions, um, that's probably the next polarized battle that we're going to fight. And that, you know, we'll see how the pro-choice movement could be emboldened enough by this to be able to really put their, you know, put their guns into that fight. Anything else you want to add? 
I'll, I'll go nerdy on the Supreme Court again just for a <laughs> second. So um, the substantive due process analysis, which, which the court is questioning in this case, which Alito is questioning in this case, is the same legal logic that upholds the right to marry. It's the same legal logic that upholds like the right to raise your children how you want. It's that same right of autonomy or right of privacy, depending on how the court puts it over the years. It goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, the right to access contraception, right? Um, all of these things are built on the same, the very same cases and the very same legal logic. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to question, if you're going to overturn Roe versus Wade on that basis, is there also political will within the court to overturn Griswold, which protects people's access to contraception? Is there will to overturn the other cases like the right to marry? You know, the right to marry a person of your choosing, um, you could say, is deeply rooted in America's history, which is one of the key things that you need to have a fundamental right, but the right to marry a person of your choosing of the opposite race or of the or of the same sex is certainly not deeply rooted in some parts of American history, probably, you know, the whole country, right, if you go back mm -hmm. to the founding. So is, you know, I worry that this, the you undermine this legal logic for abortion, but now you've unleashed a hornet's nest because now you, you basically undercut all of those other rights that there's really no conservatives aren't you know, there's no political will within the conservative movement to take back, you know, the right to interracial marriage. I, I'm right. not accusing them of that, but I'm just saying, like, legally, logically speaking, there is no underpinning for that anymore if you knock out this logic. Mm. Well, that just made so me more scared. Future. Yeah, yeah. Right. that's that's terrifying. <laughs> Way to end it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not to end on a dystopia. You brought up Handmaid's Tale, so, you know. <laughs> This is truly terrifying when you think about it. This was a very enlightening conversation, especially when you think of the laws that could be undermined because of the Supreme Court's decision on this matter. California Governor Gavin Newsom did address the matter via his Twitter page saying, quote, we are proposing an amendment to enshrine the right to choose in the California Constitution. We can't trust the Supreme Court of the United States to protect the right to abortion, so we'll do it ourselves. Women will remain protected. So we have a lot to keep an eye on with this case. Obviously, I want to thank Professor Jason Whitehead again for pointing out the fact that Roe versus Wade could just be the first domino to fall. It's a very, very curious time we live in. But of course, we're going to be following this. So make sure you check out lbpost.com daily. And if you have anything in your community that you think needs a little bit more attention, or you have a great personality or story that you think would be great for the podcast, go ahead and email me at Jackie at lbpost.com. Or you can find me on all things social media at Jackie Ray TV. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this very important episode. And remember, if you have to speak a word, make it a good one.